These are the oldest stories, online at oldeststories.net. The people of the ancient world, as I continue to stress, were just as intelligent as we are today, and possessed all the internal mental life that makes us so uniquely human. Yes, their cultural and economic context was radically different than ours is today, but if anything, that makes what they did and wrote all the more fascinating. Now, last time, we looked at Nebuchadnezzar I of Babylon and noted that his greatest accomplishment was bringing the statue of Marduk back to Babylon from Elam, an event which appears to have ignited a flourishing of cultural activity. Even if the Marduk statue itself was not such an important cause, Nebuchadnezzar's peace with the other major powers and his government patronage of many cultural works surely contributed to this. Now, we skipped a bit in the last two episodes on Nebuchadnezzar's domestic achievements, but the truth is that while they were extensive, they don't make a great story. He patronized a number of temples that we know about in Babylon, in Ur, in Nippur, and probably in a number of other places, and he's reputed to have kept as an advisor a fellow named Shagil Kinam Ubib, who was reputed in later generations to be one of the great sages and scholars of Mesopotamian history. Now, this guy... Uh, there's a bit of a confusion. There's another name that floats around there, Esagil Kinapli, who is a uh, famous scholar, and it's not clear if Esagil Kinapli and Shagil Kinam Ubib are in fact the same person. Uh, Esagil Kinapli is going to be the chief scholar under Nebuchadnezzar's son. It's possible that this guy just continued to serve after Nebuchadnezzar's death into the reign of his son. Uh, it's also possible that these are two completely different people with names which are similar in cuneiform. Like, they don't they don't sound very similar on the podcast, but if you know all the cuneiform tricks, um, Shagil Kinam Ubib and Esagil Kin Apli are, it turns out, very similar names when written down anyway. We're just going to talk about Shagil Kinam Ubib today as if he's his own person, um, and Esagil Kinapli will come on a later date. Shagil Kinam Ubib is the guy who wrote the Babylonian Theodicy, which we're going to look at in a little bit. But also, he may have written and copied or compiled a number of what we would nowadays call scientific texts. That would be if he is the same person as Esagil Kin Apli. Um, all that stuff is important in a way that doesn't really make for great history narratives. Like, I can, I can tell you that somebody in this period of time was writing medical texts, they were writing astronomical references, they were writing even these chemistry cookbooks that talked about ways to create artificial gemstones, which were probably either a type of faience, which is like a proto-glass sort of thing, or maybe homegrown crystals like you'd make in one of those kids' chemistry sets. We're not 100% sure, but all that's important here is that Babylon was clearly decently peaceful, and they were 
prosperous for a period of time when things weren't really that great on the world stage. Um, but still, there's a class of people who mostly just stood around thinking about things. These are the scribes and the priests and the various scholars, which is a powerful indicator that there was enough wealth sitting around for these people to sit around. Anyway, how much of this was actually written in the period is really hard to say. Uh, as I've mentioned before, very little survives from the what gets classed as the Bronze Age Collapse, which was still kind of in. It sort of runs until about 950 BC, depending on who's doing the counting. That said, later traditions do ascribe quite a lot of writing in general to this time period to the scholar-sage Shagil Kinam Ubib and Esagil Kin Apli. Again, maybe the same person, maybe not. Um, all, whether these things that are being ascribed to these famous individuals actually were written by them, that's a bit questionable, as it's quite common in the ancient world to ascribe works of science and literature to the most well-known figures. Rather like how, think about nowadays, there are a ton of quotes on Facebook that are floating around that get pinned on Einstein or Gandhi, but really, who knows who said it? It could have been anybody. It could have been made up on Facebook. They had that sort of thing going on back then, uh, they just didn't have as many resources to check whether these quotes were misattributed or not. Anyway, one of the things attributed to Shagil Kinam Ubib um, for certain is a work called The Babylonian Theodicy. And among the many stylistic and thematic elements that make it significant, the entire thing is arranged in 13 poetic blocks of 22 lines each. And as you're going down the tablet, the first cuneiform character of each line going down each block reads, I, Sagil Kinam Ubib, the incantation priest, am an adorant of the god and king. And this is an acrostic. It would have been much less subtle to those who read Akkadian natively, but it's interesting on multiple levels. On one hand, managing to compose a work of remarkable philosophical subtlety in poetic form, while still managing to fit an acrostic into every single block of the poem, I mean, that's a technical achievement um, in terms of being skilled at poetry. We may assume that poetic forms had evolved to a certain degree of complexity within the oral tradition, but an acrostic is something that only works in written form, telling us that this is very much a composed document, not a recording of something in the oral tradition. And this is significant because pretty much every bit of literature on the show up until now, we've had this implicit question of how long did this exist in the oral tradition before it got written down? How many lost tablets exist which predate the oldest example of whatever story we have? And these are largely unanswerable questions outside of digging up something else or in, in the case of how long was it in the oral tradition, that's gone. No, no way to answer that. But they affect our perception of how the culture shifted over time. Here, though, we have a guy 
almost certainly datable to Nebuchadnezzar's reign specifically, maybe to his son's reign, putting something down in writing that really couldn't have existed in this form in an oral tradition, and sticking his own name in there as sort of an indelible mark of authorship. Like, he could have just written his name down at the bottom, like some other scribes do, but this wraps his identity as author up in the work more potently than anything we've seen so far. In fact, the last person who was significant as a known named author of important innovative texts, that was in Hadwana. That was over a thousand years ago in the Akkadian Empire. Now, between Enhadwana and Shagilkinem Ubib, nearly everyone who wrote literature either did so anonymously or included their name as merely a copyist scribe, claiming to have gotten it from elsewhere, whether that was true or not. When we do get authorship, it's nearly always being ascribed to someone else, someone more important, often to gods or kings, and this includes things that we wouldn't even classify as literature, such as historic letters, some of which may have been works of fiction ascribed to historical characters. To sit down, to compose something wholly new, and then put your name on it saying you did this, this wasn't something that was comfortable in ancient Mesopotamian culture. Perhaps there were cultural pressures to conformity. Perhaps authorship was seen as a form of hubris. Perhaps the text itself was the focus more than who wrote it. Or perhaps they just didn't think it was relevant for whatever reason. I'm not a, honestly not 100% clear on what exactly is shifting, but this is undoubtedly a shift, though we shouldn't overstate this either, because anonymous authors is going to stay the default for the rest of ancient Mesopotamia, but it's still interesting. The Babylonian theodicy, however, is not just interesting for the historical context, and it isn't a wholly novel work either. It is a piece in a long-running genre of theodicies that we've seen since the Sumerian period. But it is an interesting contribution to the question of why there are bad things in the world. That's what theodicy means. It's asking the question, why does God specifically allow bad things? And this takes the form of a dialogue between two characters. We don't have their names, so we call them sufferer and friend. Now, the sufferer is having a bad life. Not just a bad time right now, but it seems he's been having a great string of unfortunate events, and he's come up to his friend to complain. The scene itself is so universal and pedestrian that it could be set up in pretty much any culture. Now, the opening, as is often the case, is damaged, but it begins with the sufferer saying something like this. Oh, sage... Come, let me tell you, let me inform you, through my suffering, I will not cease to reverence you. Where is the wise man of your caliber? Where is the scholar who can compete with you? Where is the counselor to whom I can relate my grief? Note that much like the prayers we've read, as well as many of the royal hymns, the sufferer feels the need to begin by flattering his friend. 
Now, perhaps his friend really is some great sage. We've just lost the, the name here. Or perhaps he's just a regular guy being flattered by the speaker. We really don't have enough context here. But it is interesting that a normal, non-royal, non-divine interlocutor should be addressed in this way. Is it possible, maybe just, you know, possible that this sort of excessive flattery was considered typical in interactions between adult men of a certain status? If this is the case, then it would cast what often seems to us to be comically overblown titulary and praise of the kings and the gods as merely being like a single notch above what was culturally customary for people in general. An alternative interpretation is that, since this is an explicitly literary work, it's borrowing the conventions of praise literature with the understanding that no one would ever actually speak like this to a friend. This may be to place it in a certain genre, much like American cartoons, they often have these little physics-defying gags, and all the modern viewers know it's unreal, but it's part of the wider genre. Is this particular piece of literature imitating real life, or is it imitating to comical exaggeration other literary forms? We don't really know, and it's mostly tangential to the point here, which the sufferer now gets to. to, gets to. He says, I'm finished. Anguish has come upon me. I was a youngest child. Fate took my father. My mother who bore me departed to the land of no return. My father and mother left me without a guardian. Now, each time after the sufferer speaks, the friend speaks in response. And the answer to this problem of his childhood orphanage goes like this. Um, respected friend, what you say is gloomy. You let your mind dwell on evil, my dear fella. You make your fine discretion like an imbecile's. You have reduced your beaming face to scowls. Our fathers, in fact, give up and go the way of death. It is an old saying that they cross the river Huber. When you consider mankind as a whole, is it not divine favor that has made the impoverished firstborn rich, whose favorite is the fatted rich man? He who waits on his God has a protecting angel. The humble man who fears his goddess accumulates wealth. Now this, by the way, remains a compelling and popular answer to the problem of evil. Though note that there are many theists who consider it either insufficient or simply mistaken. Atheists, naturally, don't get much mileage at all out of the idea that God causes good and evil. But while the question of whether there were ancient atheists is an open one, the idea was certainly out of the realm of scholarly discussion. The sufferer, in his usual pattern, responds to the friend's argument, then moves the discussion forward. My friend, your mind is a river whose spring never fails, the accumulated mass of the sea which knows no decrease. I will ask you a question. Listen to what I say. Pay attention for a moment. Hear my words. My body is a wreck. Emaciation darkens me. My success has vanished. My stability has gone. My strength is enfeebled. My prosperity has ended. Moaning and grief have blackened my features. The grain of my fields is far from satisfying me. 
My wine, the life of mankind, is too little for satiety. Can a life of bliss be assured? I wish I knew how. What I say is restrained, but you disrupt the balance of your reason like a madman. You make your complaints diffuse and irrational. You turn your attention to select things. As to your persistent, unending desire for prosperity, that thing is secured by prayers. The appeased goddess returns by piety. The god who did not uphold you before takes pity on the devout. Ever seek the correct standards of justice. Your god, the mighty one, will show kindness. Your god will grant mercy. Now, this sort of argument would be rejected by many today, but I think it's interesting because much of it might still also be given today as sound advice. If you're having a hard life, step one is to see that your perspective is overly focused on the negative. Step two is to focus on the kinds of mindset changes that will lead to success. For the Babylonians, that mindset change was a greater attention to piety, and indeed, many of the things associated with piety, like forcing yourself to be involved in the community and planning ahead, in this case to organize and afford rituals, the mental act of pulling down your pride and devoting yourself to something greater, all these are still part of addiction recovery and depression management programs today though obviously put together in a very different context. Still, the sufferer, like many sufferers, is not content with mere timeless wisdom. I bow to you, my comrade. I grasp your wisdom. I hear the utterance of your words. Now come, let me say something to you. The onager, the wild ass, who filled itself with grazed grass, did it pay attention to the giver of assured divine oracles? And the savage lion, who devoured the choicest flesh, did it bring its flower offering to appease the goddess's anger? And what of the crass merchant who has multiplied his wealth? Did he weigh out precious gold for the offerings of the goddess Mami? Have I ever held back offerings? I have prayed to my god. I have announced the blessings over the goddess's regular sacrifices. O oh, palm, tree of wealth, my precious brother, endowed with all wisdom, jewel of gold, you are as stable as the earth, but the plan of the gods is remote. Look at the superb wild ass on the plain. The arrow will follow the gora who trampled down the fields. Come, consider the lion that you mentioned, the enemy of cattle. For the crime which the lion committed, the pit awaits him. The opulent merchant who heaped up goods will be burnt at the stake by the king before his time. Do you wish to go the way these have gone? Rather, no, seek the lasting reward of your God. That is to say, the sufferer feels he's actually being very pious, but he sees others prosper without piety while he suffers despite his piety. The friend's response that the divine plan is unknowable in the short term, but balances out for the good in the long term, 
may be one of the most common responses across all major religions today. With this, we've established our primary theme, and each pair of verses seems to go back and forth on this. Your mind is a north wind, a pleasant breeze for the peoples. Choice, friend, your advice, it's fine. Just one word I'd put before you. Those who neglect the god go the way of prosperity, while those who pray to the goddess are impoverished and dispossessed. In my youth, I sought the will of my god. With prostration and prayer, I followed my goddess. But I was bearing a profitless corvée as a yoke. My god decreed instead of wealth, destitution. A cripple is my superior, a lunatic outstrips me. The rogue has been promoted, but I have been brought low. My reliable fellow, holder of knowledge, your thoughts, they're perverse. You have forsaken right and blaspheme against your god's designs. In your mind, you have an urge to disregard the divine ordinances. You ignore the sound rules of your goddess. The plans of the god, they're like the center of heaven. The decrees of the goddess are not comprehensible. To understand properly is impossible. Their ideas are foreign to mankind. Nowadays, we would often summarize this as God works in mysterious ways. To my mind, this is the same argument, but often delivered without the same respect for how utterly alien a super-powerful God-being must be to mere mortals. We think of existential dread at the scope of the universe as being like an invention of H.P. Lovecraft in the modern era, but they clearly understood it in the ancient world, probably better than we do today. The mentions in the Bible of being terrified of God, I don't know, even in a modern religious context, we really should be way more afraid of God than we are. At least in the Christian faith, we're told that God is ultimately working for the good. But nowhere are we ever told that this good is comprehensible to humanity or matches up with our own personal desires and moral compass. After all, wouldn't you expect our own perspective to be in at least some ways quite different from a being who lives on a higher plane of existence. Sadly, the middle section is badly damaged, and we don't get the sufferer's response to this. There's quite a bit that's missing after this, in fact. Enough is readable to tell that the general patterns of discussion are still going on, but we don't really pick back up until the last quarter of the text or so. Here we can sort of make out that the sufferer has been complaining that some class of people are all rogues and cheats who amass goods, presumably in unethical ways, to which the friend responds, As for the rogue whose favor you seek, his fortune soon vanishes. The godless cheat who has wealth, a death-dealing weapon pursues him. Unless you seek the will of the god, what luck have you? He that bears his god's yoke never lacks food, though it may be sparse. Seek the kindly wind of the god. Whatever you have lost over a year, you'll make up in a moment. I have looked around society, 
but the evidence is contrary. The god does not impede the way of the devil. A father drags a boat along the canal while his firstborn lies in bed. The firstborn son pursues his way like a lion. The second son is happy to be a mule driver. The heir stalks along the road like a bully. The younger son will give food to the destitute. How have I profited that I have bowed down to my God? I have to bow beneath the base fellow that meets me. The dregs of humanity, like the rich and opulent, treat me with contempt. O wise one, O savant, who masters knowledge, in your anguish you blaspheme the God. The divine mind, like the center of the heavens, is remote. Knowledge of it is difficult. The masses do not know it. Among all the creatures whom Aru formed, the prime offspring is altogether unknown. In the case of a cow, the first calf is lowly. The later offspring is twice as big. A first child is born a weakling, but the second is called a heroic warrior. Though a man may observe what the will of God is, the masses do not know it. Pay attention, my friend. Understand my ideas. Heed the choice expression of my words. People extol the word of a strong man who is trained in murder, but bring down the powerless man who's done no wrong. They confirm the wicked whose crime is obvious, yet suppress the honest man who heeds the will of his God. They fill the storehouse of the oppressor with gold, but they empty the larder of the beggar of its provisions. They support the powerful, whose life is guilt, but they destroy the weak and drive away the powerless. As for me, the penurious, a new rich person is persecuting me. Naru, king of gods, who created mankind, and majestic Zulama, who dug out their clay, and Mistress Mammy, the queen who fashioned them, gave perverse speech to the human race. With lies and not truth they endowed them forever. Solemnly they speak in favor of a rich man. He's a king, they say. Riches go at his side. But they harm a poor man like a thief. They lavish slander upon him and plot his murder, making him suffer every evil like a criminal because he has no protection. Terrifyingly, they bring him to his end and extinguish him like a flame. You are kind, my friend. Behold my grief. Help me. Look on my distress. Know it. I Though humble and wise and a suppliant, I have not seen help and succor for one moment. I have trodden the square of my city unobtrusively. My voice was not raised. My speech was kept low. I did not raise my head but looked at the ground. I did not worship even as a slave in the company of my associates. May the God who has thrown me off give me help. May the goddess who has abandoned me show mercy, for the shepherd Shamash guides the peoples like a god. And with that, the work concludes. I'm genuinely uncertain if it actually comes to a conclusion, though.
On one hand, the friend has gone from sunny optimism with to an apparent conviction that the gods simply made humans to be deeply evil, and that, for unclear reasons, they'll persecute the good and uplift the wicked. For the sufferer's part, he's left with only two conclusions. First, he seems consoled that his friend can see his grief because misery has always loved company, and that he's going to redouble his efforts at humble piety. And it may seem pointless to serve such capricious gods, but remember that these people genuinely believed in the existence of their gods, and they believed that the world was incomprehensible on a metaphysical level, both of which are suppositions I think a lot of modern folk have trouble really internalizing. You see, a lot of the time, I think we tend to over-rationalize the beliefs of the ancients. We say things like, oh, they didn't have science, so they couldn't understand, or they were just poor and they were at the mercy of the weather, all of which, I mean, may have been true, but I think it trivializes what are some really foundational beliefs. Now, you may sit there and you may think of those beliefs that they're wrong precisely because of these or other rationalizations, but you can't truly understand the mindset of the ancients without setting aside the idea that they're wrong and instead just really trying to internalize the underlying ideas that they're living with. And one of the things that we struggle with in modern society is understanding those who think differently from us. Maybe this is a universal hubris, but I'm not making a podcast for medieval people or whatever, so the modern concern is my focus. Consider the fact that the existence and moral rightness of slavery went broadly unquestioned for most of human history. While pretty universally in the West today, it's hard to find anyone who doesn't hold the idea that slavery is morally repugnant. And slavery is just one of many examples, but I think many people really can't comprehend how slavery could have been seen as morally acceptable at any point. You have to be able to get in the head of ancient people to really understand their fundamental presuppositions or you'll never be able to escape the assumptions of your own mind and thus never really understand the intellectual foundation that you yourself stand on. You don't have to change your view on anything, but when you realize that ancient people were cognitively psychologically, intellectually, working with the same basic equipment that we have today, just with a different set of assumptions, you see just how contingent your own views are. We look at the things that ancient people did that we disapprove of, and we say, oh, you know, so-and-so, he was just a man of his time. That is, when we're not imposing our moral compass as universal, and then getting them canceled from modern discussion, but at what point do I stop and I say, oh, I, I am a man of my time. Because while I don't always do good in practice, I certainly always intend to do good, at least as I see it, and I'm sure that you do as well. No one sets out with an intention to work evil in the world, yet how should we see the slavers of the ancient world? Now, at this point, I think some of you know what I mean already. Others, you're thinking that none of this really matters. After all, we're right and they're wrong, and if you disagree, you probably support slavery and war crimes and traditional gender roles and all that other Stone Age nonsense of the ancient world. But 
Consider this. As we were going through this theodicy, how much of it sounds like stuff you still hear today? How much of it sounds like just two guys chatting? How much of the ancient wisdom that we've seen on previous episodes and over on the Oldest Stories TikTok channel, which comes comes back to life every now and then when I have time, how much of that ancient wisdom really sounds relatable? And yet these are the same people working from the same set of ideas that we reject in many other contexts. Very little of our intellectual milieu is actually reasoned from first principles. Some of what we now consider to be received wisdom probably couldn't or wouldn't be generated from the first principles that we think we hold. It's been inherited from earlier times with earlier ideas. And ultimately, it's up to each of us to find our own moral and intellectual foundation. All I'm encouraging is that through the study of history, you at least become familiar with a variety of such foundations and become at least capable of recognizing that the rock on which you were born is not the only such rock, even if you do indeed decide that you prefer yours best. Anyway, as with any great piece of literature, this is only one direction in which it can take us. Leaving aside the philosophical, the Babylonian theodicy is also a deep psychological work. Given the religious nature of much ancient literature, we see a number of really interesting discussions of suffering. We see a lot of depressed folks crying out to the gods for help. And one of my favorite examples is something I can't find a date for. I've just, it's been sitting in my to-do list for a while. It was written sometime during the Iron Age in Akkadian, and it's the prayer of an unhappy and quite old scribe, likely penned directly by the scribe from his own heart to the god Nabu, who rules over writing. But it's also in this later period, closely associated with Marduk, and that's quite important. And so we're going to close out today by just reading through that. The opening, as usual, is lost, and it's written by someone who seems quite old, and goes, O oh, Nabu, lest I sin, O oh, son of the Lord, lest I offend, on account of the heedless deeds of my ancestors and kinsfolk, who heedlessly neglected the rites of Tashmetu, I have longed for Ezida, the high ground, the house in which we put our trust. I have longed for Ezida, the threshold of delight. Now, threshold of delight makes it sound like some sort of pleasure palace, but the Ezida was a temple of Nabu, and the longing and delight here are spiritual in nature. Even as an infant, I've longed for the Collegium to take my place in its house of learning. That is to say, he always wanted to be a scribe. My strength was the precious offerings of the temple of Nabu. I was ever mindful of its beauties. It was the fire of Ezida that stroked my heart. I gained wealth. I attained what I wanted ahead of my time. Now, old age has me bedridden prematurely. 
I am wasted by my suffering, as if I were not fearing your divinity. I weep, for I have not seen the beauty of my life. And interesting here that he can go in only a few lines from acknowledging that he once had good things to saying that he has not seen the beauty of his life yet. And intellectual contradiction, but probably a sincere emotional statement here. I have become the smallest of the small. I have become the lowest of the low. My begging hands are outstretched even to the poverty-stricken who frequent my door. I've entreated slaves and slave girls who I used to buy in commerce. And isn't that something for modern sensibilities to chew on? Part of his suffering is that he once owned slaves and is now lower than those slaves. What would now be framed as a righteous revenge a slaver brought low was intended quite sincerely as a man at the tail end of his life genuinely upset by his struggles. Can we sympathize with him? Is there a, a Schadenfreude here? Can it be both or neither? Maybe seeing the pain, seeing the symptoms of that pain, and seeing the cause should all be considered separately? But his sorrow doesn't end there. When I moved against my enemy, a sorceress splashed water on my back. I'm cut off from my community. Enemies of my family glower at me. Anguish, sickness are upon me. I'm stricken with weakness. I keep crying out to the estranged gods, raising my hand in prayer in heed of my goddess. I've gone everywhere for a mother. She has shrunk from me and is clawing at me. Death has tantalized me like a precious stone. I constantly go up to the roof to jump off, but my life is too precious. It turns me back. I try to encourage myself. What is there for me to encourage? I try to keep control of my thoughts, but what is there for me to control? Oh, Nabu, where is your forgiveness? Oh, son of the Lord, where are your oracles? Where is your favorable breeze that wafts over your weakling subjects? Oh, Lord, how long will there be darkness in my time of trouble? The sun lights up the land, but for me, only darkness. Prosperity rains down on the people, but for me, rains down urine and gall. My life is spent, O oh, account keeper of the universe, where shall I go? I have reached death's door, O oh, Nabu. Why have you forsaken me? Do not forsake me, my lord, for the company of my numerous ill-wishers. To the wicked hands of my sorceress, do not forsake me. O oh, God, called by the good name. I am a weakling who fears you. Do not shame me in public. I am a guardian of truth. Do not destroy the truth I have guarded. May the lonely one not die who is called up to you, O Lord. O oh, Nabu, 
Take the hand of the fallen one who attends your divinity. Spare the life of the weakling whom ill wishes hemmed in, whom baleful witches had splashed with conjured water. Let the dead man revive by your breeze. Let his squandered life become gain. Next episode, we're getting back to the history, and the thread of fate moves us further from Babylon as the main player on our stage will be Assyria for quite some time to come. So join us next time for the emergence of some of the players who are going to dominate the coming era with the emergence of the Arameans and the fitful beginnings of the Assyrian imperial system, which will one day build the greatest empire the world has yet seen. Thank you for listening. <laughs>